Welcome back to episode number 36, and this is going to be part number six, and we're going to continue our fourth crusade investigation. And we're going to make this one also freely available, because again, I think the fourth crusade is probably the number one thing that's brought up by the overt polemicizers against Rome from the side of Eastern Orthodox, generally speaking. And since this one is focused on the siege of Constantinople, then that's even more important. So with that in mind, quick recap, we have the debacle in Venice with the French crusaders who can't pay, and then the Venetians who have this idea to sack Zara, a city that they see as being rebellious to their authority, and the Pope was not having this, and basically the people who resisted the sack of Zara was the papacy and particular Frankish leaders, be they crusaders or clergy, and they would not continue on, and they would eventually go on to have their own crusade against the Cathars, and as we'll see, that probably ends up being the right decision, considering everything that's going to happen from this. Now, there are still French barons and a lot of French crusaders that are continuing on with this crusade, but it's really not their rodeo, as we're going to find, again, Germanic interests, Venetian interests, and Byzantine emperor interests all involved in this rogue crusade. So, I think that the moral of the story, as we'll go through this, and as you'll probably be able to see pretty clearly, is that there's perhaps some karma involved. And we'll go through some bullet points on the broad narrative and things to keep in mind, the macro concepts here, and then we'll get right into the narrative itself. So, first point, consider that after we go through all of this sad mess, that this could have been completely avoided if the Crusaders had, one, just listened to the Pope, whom the Eastern Orthodox and even Protestants often polemicize as being a god-emperor, of which everybody just submits to blindly and stupidly and ignorantly, and also that the Crusaders, which followed the French leaders, Simon de Montfort and company that went on to the Cathar Crusade, well, if they had listened to them, then maybe they would have gone on to a much more noble crusade in dealing with the Cathar heresy that actually came from Constantinople. And that's the very strange irony here that one set of crusaders goes on to fight the Cathars and the heresy that came from Constantinople. The rogue faction goes and ends up sacking Constantinople, the very place where the heresy came from or the uh, more hardcore mutation of it happened. And go back to the Cathar episode number 20 um, if you want to review on that. Next point. The Frankish soldiery in all of this, even the ones that went on to Constantinople, on the whole, still look a lot more honorable than all the other groups involved, including the Greek emperors and aristocracy. And really, it was their naivete and being used by particular leaders and not being in the know about some pretty important things uh, like they didn't know that they were excommunicated and they thought they were absolved. That's kind of a big issue, especially in context of the times. In other words, they just wanted to get to the Holy Land and they thought these would be short stops to perform a righteous duty. But there were other machinations that were hiding things to make it seem more righteous than it actually was. And that's the point. And the next point, most importantly, who is the number one target that the Eastern Orthodox polemicists rail against when they blame a conspiracy against Roman Catholicism against Byzantium? Well, it's the papacy and the Franks, generally speaking. 
And of course, those are the very two groups that were the least responsible for this. And in fact, if people had listened to them, or at least the faction of the French, like we mentioned, that went on to the Cathar Crusade, well, this entire debacle would be completely avoided and the Eastern Orthodox would be thanking them. And I know I'm harping on that point over and over again, but that is at the heart of the matter because it's the very opposite of what those types of Eastern Orthodox polemics claim as the conspiracy against Byzantium. And again, there's particular ones that don't do that, and we're not having a beef with them. This is for the ones that claim this type of conspiracy. That is our problem here. Next bullet point. We've talked many times about the archetype or symbolism of the Ouroboros, It's just the satanic spirit that devours itself and splits into dialectics, but still unifies on essentially some uh, quote-unquote satanic behavior, right? Satan casting out Satan, divided amongst himself, all those things that go back to what Christ warned about. So we have a Latin and Greek Ouroboros, where the Latins fight within their own circles. We talked about the Venetians, the Pisans, and the Genoese. We talked about the Greek Ouroboros, the anti-Western factions, the pro-Western factions, and the different emperors, and basically the Byzantine emperor and court Ouroboros, where they're all fighting for power and having constant coups and devouring each other, and there's not really a whole lot of stability. And the next point I would bring up is that the city of Constantinople itself seems to act as sort of like this Babylon archetype and revelation where it seems to bring out satanic behavior on both sides of East and West. And a lot of this revolves around mercantilism, money or economic power, trade, and political power. And there's just a big, giant crap show here. And I would also ask, where are all the Byzantine clergy in all of this? Because in this narrative, you see them very absent from all of the going-ons. And I'm saying Eastern or Western. I didn't see a whole lot of ecclesiastical leaders cropping up in this tale. It seems to be mostly military and a lot of things tied to, again, political and economic interests. Next point. To be fair, the Eastern Orthodox rage against the Latins is certainly understood and is not going to be lost on us throughout this. But unfortunately... Generally speaking, it seems to be pretty misguided coming from the polemicizers where they want to act like they're the complete victim here, haven't really done anything wrong, and it's all the West's fault, and they don't want to make any distinctions between, well, people like the Pope and those crusaders that wouldn't go along with this, like we mentioned. That is where the issue is, you know, foundational to all of this. And this is ironic because in the last segment we did, we had the Greek clergy who were telling all of their own people that the Latiners were misguided Christians and they didn't know what they were doing and, you know, have pity on them, they're so ignorant, something like that. But then, of course, when the massacre of the Latins gets incited, they actually target the Latin clergy and tell the mob to go behead them and, you know, tie their severed heads to the behinds of dogs to run around the city. And the last thing I mentioned is actually... The Venetians, despite not looking so good in a lot of this, did actually kind of keep their word, uh, as did the Frankish crusaders who followed through on the crusade. And so if you want to take it strictly to people just doing what they say, and even if they're manipulating a situation on the more important bargains they've had, they do keep their promises. 
Well, it's interesting that they tend to do that more than the Greeks who end up not being able to keep their promises. But the funny thing is, all of that honor encounters people who can't pay them money. And that was the whole reason they forced the Franks to go to Zara to begin with. And now they're going to encounter that very same problem when this Byzantine emperor who basically is, you know, asking them for this coup and promising them all this money, he can't pay up either. And so, like we said, when money is the heart of it, rather than charity and getting to the Holy Land, then that's when the Ouroboros of Constantinople swallows you up. All right, now let's move on to the reading. So we're going back to the book Enrico Dandolo and the Rise of Venice by Thomas F. Madden, and we're going to chapter 9 this time, and we're going to read select passages and summarize from pages 155 through 172. The chapter after that is about the Latin dominance of Constantinople, and it just continues on this saga, but you know we only have so much time. So I'd highly advise you to get that book if you're interested in this. It's pretty good. And then in the resources file, there's a bunch of other references and books that um, you know are more peripheral, but also very useful. So you can check those out if you'd like. So chapter nine, we're going to read a sizable quotation to bring us up to speed here. And it says, Now the crusade was headed to Constantinople, a source of great profit for the Venetians and home to thousands of their countrymen. For those left behind, it was a time of watching, waiting, and prayer. Throughout the Fourth Crusade's stay at Venice and its subsequent mission to Zara, the enterprise had largely been under the control of the Venetians. So again, the Venetians are large and in charge here. Unable to meet their commitments, the Frankish leaders agreed to serve the interests of the commune for a time. So again, The Frankish leaders and crusaders who followed the Pope are not continuing on with this. Again, that's Simon de Montfort and that whole faction. But the ones that continued on are still owing them debts. And so there's still an understandability that, you know, they've made a promise to do this and pay their debts. And ultimately, that's a means to an end because they want to get to the Holy Land. So you know, again, there is a noble intention here. It wasn't like these crusaders were like, let's go to Constantinople and screw up Byzantium. They didn't even know they were going there uh, for a time. And then once they find out, there's some dissension that happens very similar to what already happened with Zara. And then the whole debt thing will continue into Constantinople, as we shall see. So with the Zara agreement fulfilled, there is sort of a shift in command here. And it says it's most evident in the sudden arrival of Boniface of Montferrat, in December 1202, and he was followed a few weeks later by the envoys of Philip of Swabia. So those are going to be two key figures we'll elaborate on in just a second. The function and motivation of the crusade was changing. No longer could Enrico Dandolo direct the crusaders according to his will, as he did outside the walls of Zara. But you're going to see that he's still very much involved later on in the siege, and so he doesn't really take that much of a back seat as it would seem despite the leadership and their objectives changing. And so, what was the objective that changed? Well, they state here that their decision to take up the cause of young Alexius Angelus, who would become the Byzantine emperor because of them, the fourth. And basically it says that although Dandolo supported the diversion, it was Boniface who had championed it from Rome to Venice and then to Corfu, which is a Greek island. And we'll talk about uh, what happens there. And as long as the wayward Byzantine prince remained with the crusade, he would stay firmly within the circle of Boniface of Montferrat. So now we have a Byzantine royalty or aristocracy, right? He's from the Greek culture. 
He's Byzantium's own. He is trying to work with these crusaders to basically get put on the throne of Byzantium. So this is not a Western plot that is devoid of any Eastern shenanigans. That is the point. And you'll find that all of these guys are pretty much related in some way. There's Byzantium, Greek aristocracy mixed in with Italian aristocracy that controls, you know, parts of Germany or Italy or whatever. So this is an East-West collaboration. And what is the unity here? Well, they're all disobeying the Pope and they're all going to use the naivete of the Frankish crusaders who just want to get to the Holy Land. And they're all vying for power in Constantinople. And so this is a political maneuver by using religious intentions to deceive the Franks and, you know, the Venetian crusaders too. But at the same time, they do have some decent intentions mixed in and they do have their noble moments in all of this in terms of who they're deposing and how they act. So you can't just say that this was completely conniving but you can't really mix those two things together and think you're going to get a good result. That's kind of, I think, the point of Christianity. And so it's an unfortunate situation. It's something more to be lamentable on both sides of the equation. And that is where the East and West should harmonize on is admitting the sins of both sides and not trying to separate and segregate and make one side seem good, the other side seem bad here. That's kind of what I would advocate if we're going to look at this situation especially if you want to be ecumenical about it, right? So, quick recap. The rogue crusade power shifts from Dandolo and Venetian oligarchy interests to Boniface and his cousin Philip of Swabia. And Boniface is an Italian who's from the Italy town of Piedmont, which is, strangely enough, where a lot of the Cathars will escape to northern Italy area. And this is where there was a lot of Masonic activity because it's very close to Geneva. So as we mentioned, that area of southern France into northern Italy is kind of a hotbed for a lot of anti-Christian uh, revolutionary activity. And it stays that way for centuries. And there's certain battlegrounds that always seem to be, you know, uh, dealing damage over time or, or having all these conflicts. One of them is also southern Germany and in Bavaria and stuff like that. And so I find that interesting uh, there's probably a lot we could expand upon with that, but let's get back on track here. And so they were championing the cause of this potential Byzantine successor who becomes Alexios IV Angelos, and he was also Philip of Swabia's brother-in-law. So like we said, it's all in the family here. We have this Germanic-Italian-Greek aristocracy vying for this Byzantine throne. And again, none of this is sanctioned by the Pope nor the Frankish leaders who abandoned the crusade at Zara. And they're going to have to dupe the Frankish crusaders that are still with them, unfortunately. So let's do a little bit of an expansion on these three figures here. We have Boniface of Montferrat. He was from an Italian royalty with Byzantine connections. And one of his brothers had been offered a hand in marriage by Manuel Comnenos to his daughter. Now remember, this is the guy that was in harmony with Eastern and Western interests. And he's the one who... Anatoly Fomenko's Christ, Andronikos, took over and massacred the Latins, right? So, you know, Manuel Comnenos is seemingly not such a bad emperor compared to uh, Andronikos, who genocided all these Roman Catholics, right? And 
you know, was maybe a pseudo-pedophile and all the weird stuff we talked about with him. So, if this marriage had happened, this guy would be basically in the imperial Byzantine court in the aristocracy. So, it's not like he's alien to Byzantium. And then his nephew was a co-king of Jerusalem. So, as we mentioned, a lot of these guys are connected to Greek aristocracy. It's not just Rome, Rome, Rome here. And then Philip of Swabia was born in Italy and ruled in Germany. And from what I could tell, he's not really seen as particularly well-known or all that important in history, but he was also assassinated. Um, I don't know, maybe there's some karma involved in that. You could look more into him if you'd like, but I don't know much more about him that's relevant to our purposes other than that. And I'd say more importantly, the Byzantine claimant to the throne here, Alexios IV Angelos, well, he was imprisoned when a Byzantine coup, which again is not really a rare thing, it would seem, took out his paternal uncle, who was the emperor Alexios III Angelos, and then apparently two Pisan merchants smuggled him out of Constantinople. So it's interesting that they are Pisans who are smuggling him out, not Venetians, because we know that the Pisans and the Venetians don't like each other. So it's just a giant crap show, you know? Now, I'll make a clarification here. Isaac II Angelos was this guy's father. Now, this guy was blinded and deposed by this very same uncle who had just been deposed that caused his exile. (laughs) So since the days of Irene gouging out her son's eyes and everything that we went over with Charlemagne, it would seem that this Byzantine Ouroboros of emperors has not gotten much better, uh, perhaps even worse. So have they repented from their ways and, and learned from their sins? Apparently not. And then Alexios, after he takes Constantinople with the help of these crusaders and becomes emperor, well, somehow his father ends up getting released from prison and gets recrowned emperor even though he's blind. And I'm going to make a little bit of a joke here that maybe Dandolo, remember this guy is supposed to be 90 years old and blind, who is leading the charge in these crusades. I don't know how this is going to happen. And we're going to talk about a funny, uh, you know, kind of like Michael Bay-esque depiction of him later on in this Battle of Constantinople. But maybe he convinced people that old blind men could still be effective. I don't know. So apparently there's a co-crown now with the blind father and this usurping son using the crusaders as his hammer, but they don't even like each other, apparently. And then Alexios kind of turns cold to the Crusaders when some Byzantine aristocracy rise up and become anti-Latin. So it's going to cause all these problems. The people of Constantinople get mad, and then the Crusaders are mad because their promises aren't being fulfilled by the emperor. And it just turns into an incredibly chaotic and confusing situation And, you know, I'm sure we all can't wait to dig into that. So uh, without further ado, let's move on. So with those three new main players involved in directing this crusade, um, what they do is they kind of do a little Byzantium world tour uh, on their ships to try to gain support for the local surroundings in Greece and, um, you know, just get support for this new coup. And apparently this is kind of how left-right political factions dealt with campaigning or winning elections, if you will, because the way they won elections was just going and taking a place by force, right? (laughs) It's a bit different than these days, but they're still doing some of the fundamental things of trying to get support 
and campaigning and trying to convince people that they're going to be the emperor who's going to give them everything they want, right? So is this just kind of like political campaigns, you know, Byzantium style back during these days? And apparently during this campaigning, they even picked up a few new crusaders along the way, and they stayed on this Greek isle of Corfu for a few weeks. Now, here's where you see the different cultures really come out between the Franks and the Latins and the Greeks. And why is this relevant? Well, refer back to what we've been over in the previous segments, where the Franks were protecting the popes from these Latin factions and Greek factions that wanted control of Italy and Rome, right? And so the questions we were asking was, were the Franks and the Pope the bad guys and usurping the Byzantine emperorship um, in comparison to Irene and the eye gouging and all that stuff, right? Well, now we're going to see the continuation of that and how the cultures act in all of these uh, tricky situations. And so here we go. We have uh, Italian, Greek, and Germanic aristocracy conspiring for the throne of Byzantium. And they're all camping out in this island. They're all, you know, paisanos with each other, right? They're campaigning for, you know, the Byzantium throne. They're on an exotic Greek island. There's probably some festivities going on. They're all kind of merchants and traders and whatever. So they're all kind of like shooting the you-know-what, while the Franks, meanwhile, camped out outside of town and perhaps maybe didn't want to participate in some of these exotic political campaigns. I don't know. But once the rest of the Crusaders' infantry got wind that they were going to Constantinople, well, that's when there was another dissent, and it almost derailed the crusade once again. But apparently the leaders were able to convince them to go to Constantinople, and this is how they did it. It says, quote, However, the rank and file, or the infantry, agreed to perform the task of going to Constantinople if it were done speedily and if it were assured of quick transport to the Holy Land after. So these Frankish crusaders and also whatever Venetians are there that are the lower um, infantry, you know, on the need to know basis, folks, they're saying, we'll go to Constantinople and bring this Byzantine emperor back to his rightful place if we can just do it quick and then we want to get immediately to the Holy Land afterwards and, you know, get the debts paid and all that stuff, right? So they just thought that this was going to be a quick stop. This guy's the deserving king. We're going to restore him. And the interesting thing we'll find is that this soon-to-be emperor is talking himself up a lot, saying that Constantinople, they're all going to support me there. They're going to love me. Once they see me enter the city with an army, they're going to raise their fists and they're going to depose the current emperor, right? That's his... uh American Idol LARP or Byzantium Idol LARP, right? But is that the actual case in reality? And we're going to see that that actually does become kind of a problem. Surprise, surprise. So the point is that the Franks and the lower level infantry, they're getting all these promises of things that seem to be pretty agreeable if people are going to keep their word. But the problem is, are they so naive to think that they're trusting in men rather than the Pope, but we're going to find out that a lot of them didn't even know they were excommunicated. And so you really have to feel for the Frankish soldiers throughout a lot of this. They are in the dark and they are just making promises and keeping them while other people are making promises and not keeping them to them. So like I said, the Franks look way more innocent and virtuous in most instances, but unfortunately at the very end, they kind of succumb to the 
satanic temptations of Constantinople with a final siege, as we'll see. But that also involves some Greek bad blood and shenanigans as well. So it's taking two to tango. Continuing on, as we mentioned, apparently the Venetians were quite comfy on this island and they had mercantile connections and some history that made them buddy-buddy at the time. Uh, you know, they might have been warring in other times, but it says, quote, Despite the circumstances of their stay in 1203, meaning their Latins about to perform a coup on Byzantium, well, despite this, there does not appear to be any discord between the Venetians and the people of Corfu at this time. But, like we said, you had the Franks camped out separate, and I think it's fair to assume that they were the ones much more eager to get to the Holy Land. And also, uh, maybe we mention this, uh, if not, it's kind of important, the Venetians had a history of passing on crusades because they'd rather stay at home and make money through trade. And this is similar to that Hungarian king we talked about who would only, uh, you know, uh, delegate people out to go to crusades when it was convenient to get favors from Rome, whereas the Franks seem to be the ones who are more wholeheartedly and self-sacrificingly committed to getting to the Holy Land. And again, this flies in the face of the Eastern Orthodox polemics against the Franks because these guys are trying to help out the Christian Empire and Byzantium. So, and it's a grave injustice, I think, to keep blaming the Franks for all these things um, on the whole. I'm not saying there's no instances where there's bad things happening, but especially in this whole debacle, like we said, they seem to be the most virtuous and most pious of all these competing factions, even once they all get to Constantinople. And so, even more to this point, upon reaching Constantinople after they departed from this exotic island, it states, quote, For Enrico Dandolo and the Venetians, Constantinople was a familiar sight. Not so for the Franks. Very few of them had ever been to Constantinople. Indeed, few knew that so large a city existed in the world. They had never beheld so many and such marvelous or magnificent palaces and the many domes of Orthodox churches were also strange and marvelous sight. In other words, the Franks had much more humble origins, and perhaps later on, they might have succumbed to some of these temptations of this Constantinople Babylon Ouroboros, because it's about a hundred years after this we see all the weird stuff with the Templars. Now, whether they were guilty or not, it's tough to say, and that's something that I'm going to look into more later. Um, Barwell has some interesting things to say about it in memoirs. We'll talk about that in the memoir series in the member section. But if the Templar charges were true, well, it would kind of make sense that these types of crusaders might have stayed in the East and been the ones succumbing to temptations and, you know, all the things that go with it, right? M making money, uh, fractional reserve banking, and then, you know, sexual immorality and all the things that seem to go with you know, the Ouroboros of Byzantine emperors and all of these political machinations, despite having aspects of all this mixed in with Christian duties to defend the Holy Land. Continuing, so once at Constantinople on the outskirts, they all debated their battle plans. How are we going to, you know, take this place over and get this emperor back on the throne? And ironically, the blind Dandolo, who's 90 years old, allegedly, he had the most experience and knowledge, so he actually makes the battle plans, but he can't even see physically. <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, I guess, ominous, maybe. 
Uh, so the soon-to-be emperor Alexios IV boasted that once the people of Constantinople saw him with a crusading army, essentially they'd immediately side with him in performing this coup. And again, is this delusions of grandeur? We shall see. And it says, quote, Young Alexius had assured the barons that his mere presence at the head of an army would cause the people of Constantinople to rise up and overthrow the tyrant. And well acquainted with Byzantine politics, Dandolo knew that coups were not uncommon in Constantinople. So again, a coup to get a new Byzantine emperor on the throne, that's kind of par for the course in Constantinople. Dandolo knew this. And so they were kind of trusting that this young king or future king had all this support in Constantinople and maybe they wouldn't even need to draw a sword at all, right? Similar to how they thought it would go at Zara. But the ironic thing that might get lost on this is that they are siding with a Byzantine emperor rather than the Pope, right? They're going against the Pope's wishes. Now, here's the ironic thing that we talked about. We mentioned how the Byzantine emperor kind of acted like a Pope sometimes. He's supporting the clergy. He's supporting the yes-men and the people who are, you know, theologically favorable to him. And if the emperor liked to engage in heresy or do things that justified his own personal you know, sins or whatever, then he'd appoint the clergy he wanted to allow that for justification, right? Whereas Rome was always against that. So here's another instance where this is all going against the Pope and Rome's wishes and appealing to the idea of a Byzantine emperor knowing better, right? And of course, also mixed in with financial compensation and different economic interests. And so the book goes on to describe that some of these barons weren't quite as confident as this future king in his boasts of his popularity in Constantinople. And so they actually decided to wait for about nine or ten days to gather intelligence and find out what his actual support was in the city. And they describe it as thus. And so for nine long days they waited and watched, always expecting the promised revolt or at least some news of conditions in the city from young Alexius's friends. Nothing happened. The city seemed to ignore them. <laughs> so they go in expecting all these people going to be murmuring about, you know, this young emperor, he's going to come back and he's going to save us from this tyranny. But nobody seemed to care and there didn't seem to be anybody who was noticing them at all uh, coming from his representation in camp. So obviously that's not a very good sign. And I would also ask, who is more to blame in this situation in terms of people being dishonest? Well, it's the Greek prince trying to gain the throne of Constantinople, right? Everyone else is keeping their word from the Latin side, um, despite some people omitting certain things, right? So we're not ignoring the sins of the Venetians, but we're saying that uh, when you can't keep your word at all and you're making all these false promises, that's more of a mortal sin than the other ones we've been describing. That's kind of the point I'm trying to get at here. So continuing on, uh, Dandolo at least knew he'd get the Venetian support, because remember, the Venetians have a good presence here, especially after the massacre of the Latins actually helped them, oddly enough. But the Pisans would probably back, ironically, the current regime of Alexius III because of their own little Latin beef, their own little Latin Ouroboros, right? And it says, quote, Dandolo, therefore, likely knew about Alexius III's agents who were spreading the word among the people that the young prince, or this future Alexios IV, 
had promised to lay the Orthodox Church prostrate before Rome. So here's the interesting thing. The Pisans are Latins, right? But they would back the current emperor. And then the Venetians, who are going to crusade and trying to get a new emperor, well, they're going to probably be backed by the Venetians in the Latin quarters. So this is separating two different Latin factions to support two different emperors who are Greek. And so, as we said, this is not a Latin versus Greek thing. There are conspiring factions on both sides to try to get particular benefits, and a lot of it's tied to mercantile activity, right? So that's the point. It's not an East versus West thing. And also, the most important thing is this East and West Ouroboros is all ignoring the Pope's orders. That's the point. Because the current regime under Alexius III They're anti-Roman Catholic Church and saying the Orthodox Church is in charge and we're going to keep them in charge. The Pisans don't care because they're getting their business done. And then we have this usurping emperor who's going to unite the East and the West, but it's really under Phoenician interests. And, you know, like I said, it's just a big mess. So also kind of lost amongst all of this is that the French crusaders were innocently naive in this situation because, as we mentioned, they're being completely manipulated by the Byzantine prince who's saying that he has all this support in Constantinople, which he obviously doesn't. The Venetians are lying, uh, or the Frankish barons that are leading them and following the, the Venetians, by telling them that they've all been absolved of their sins at Zara by the Pope, and they haven't. They're still excommunicated, technically. So again, they are the least likely candidates for a Frankish conspiracy or a power grab of Byzantium. So let's move on, do a little more reading. It says, the crusade leaders met to discuss the situation. And once again, here's a very important passage. The French were anxious to inform the people of Constantinople that they were not enemies, but friends who had come to deliver Byzantium's beloved rightful lord. So the French guys think that all Byzantium loves this king and we're going to restore your rightful king and we're not your enemies. We're just here to help you out. That's their mindset. And more importantly, it says they could not understand that for most Greeks, a rightful lord was whoever could seize and hold power in the capital. So, yeah, whoever is the strongest guy and can just, you know, beat somebody else up and gain the throne. That's who the rightful lord is to us. Right. It has nothing to do with honor. And the Franks just the honor and chivalry is part of their culture. So they just think that we're doing the right thing because this guy has the right claim, right? So they're just being convinced by this Byzantium usurper's shenanigans. So that, again, shows a distinct difference between the culture of Constantinople and a lot of these Latins like the Venetians and the Franks who are much more concerned with chivalry and virtue And they're just under the assumption that everybody's operating under that same Christian morality, but uh, they're just being strung along, unfortunately. And of course, the Venetians know about the Greek Ouroboros of Byzantium emperors, as it states, Dandolo, who knew this fact of Byzantine life well, no doubt tried to explain matters to his allies. His case was not helped by the arrival of an imperial envoy expressing bewilderment at the crusaders' presence at Constantinople And here's another kind of hilarious conundrum, if it wasn't so sad later on, that once these crusaders are recognized by the people in Constantinople, it says they were offering supplies to help them on their way to the Holy Land. (laughs) So these crusaders are there to 
usurp the Byzantine throne, get another Byzantine emperor on the throne. That's why they're in Constantinople. And the people are seeing them as crusaders. And they're saying, hey, you guys are going to the Holy Land. Let us help you out and give you some money and supplies. (laughs) Maybe they should have taken that deal and just left this whole madness and gone to the Holy Land. I I don't know. Um, So it says this bit of diplomatic subterfuge left a false impression with the French that even Alexius III did not know the reason for the Crusaders' journey to Byzantium. So, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but let's recap this conundrum, because I just think it's so strange and ironic, and again, at times comical. The people discover the Crusaders are in Constantinople, and these are the citizens that are going to have a coup performed by them on their own city, and they're actually talking of helping to aid them and give them supplies to go to the Holy Land, The French soldiers, second point, they just want to make a peaceful transfer of power, as is popular to talk about these days in American politics. And they want to restore the throne to the rightful king, despite their complete naivete of the situation. The third point, the Venetians in Constantinople would likely back the coup happening or about to happen due to Dandolo and their presence of Venetians in the Crusaders. Number four. Awkwardly, all these people have been hanging out there for several days before any sort of declaration of coup or military uh, flexing was made. So in some strange way, this is kind of like a Trojan horse strategy that simply happened organically. And so after all this, uh, they decided to take action and begin this takeover. Now, this is very different from the massacre of the Latins, where the emperor just storms the city tells all the Greek people, hey, go kill and genocide the Latins. They're awful. And, you know, basically prodding the passions and the bad blood. Whereas this is much more diplomatic. And again, this is a Latin version of a coup versus a Greek version of a coup. I know they're putting a Greek emperor on, but this is very different from, you know, Andronikos Christ of Anatoly Fomenko, who just marched right in and started the massacre and incited revolt right away, right? And he was, you know, basically being backed by all the Greek factions. There wasn't as much Latin interest because that's who they're killing. And the Venetians are kind of, you know, in the back door behind all of this behind the scenes, right? So it's kind of night and day here if we're looking at it culturally and how they're performing these coups. Now, how other coups have worked, I don't know. I'm just saying that this is kind of a microcosmic example that might uh, be more macro uh, throughout the centuries of Byzantine coups. I don't know. But nonetheless, in their taking action to initiate this takeover, this is kind of how they approach it. (laughs) Well, it kind of happened like an election campaign at first. They're walking around the city and doing campaigning Byzantium style and saying, hey, we're going to take over and depose this tyrant and we're going to convince you to side with us and they're going to make their campaign promises, right? And I guess they were making small declarations in certain sections of the city. I guess that would probably look like them going into a public space and be like, I am Alexios IV, your new emperor, follow me. And, you know, having the crusaders pull out their swords so they can see the military might and just see how many people respond. (laughs) You're going to find they didn't respond very well where it says, quote, on several occasions, the barons dispatch vessels to the seawalls or messengers to the city gates to explain their mission. Each time they receive the same answer, a flurry of missiles. (laughs) So every time they declare that they're there to, you know, 
bring about the rightful ruler and restore justice and whatever their campaign promises were. People like shooting arrows at him or throwing rocks at him or throwing projectiles at him, right? Like, boo, get out of here. (laughs) Not exactly the fanfare that Mr. Alexios, the future fourth, promised all of these crusaders. Continuing, it says, At last they decided to concentrate their efforts on one final high-profile attempt to communicate with the people. On July 3rd, all 60 of the Venetian war galleys rode out uh, across the Bosporus, taking up a position very close to the capital's seawall. So all the navy is going to flex their naval muscle, and then the French soldiers are there on the ground. They're the ground troops. Enrico Dandolo, Boniface of Montferrat, so all the leaders, and the young Alexius were aboard one of the galleys, and probably the sumptuous vessel of the Doge. As expected, the galleys drew a large crowd of onlookers. The crusaders displayed the prince while shouting, Behold! Your natural lord. <laughs> so they display this prince up on the boat with all of their military might. And they're like, behold, here is your natural ruler. And they expected a, a giant cheer. And as part of their campaign promises, they cried out against the crimes of the current ruler, Alexius III. And they stressed that Alexios, the soon to be fourth, had not come to do harm to the people of Constantinople, right? They didn't want to attack anybody in the city. They didn't want to attack any citizens or even the soldiery, but rather they wanted to defend them all and assist them against this tyrant that they were under of Alexios III. And they then urged the Greeks to take action against the usurper, but if they refused, then the crusaders promised to do as much damage to the city as they were able. So they're like, okay, we're not here to harm you, but if you go against our wishes, we're going to start harming you, right? Is this kind of like the people who say, oh, yeah, you got to vote. You got to vote. It's it's this great thing. But, oh, you're voting for Trump? Oh, oh, fascists, go get them, right? I mean, that's kind of, you know, what's happening here, uh, you know, at the, the core <laughs> foundations of it, right? So they're trying to sell themselves as having a glorious cause, right? But the Greeks uh, aren't really buying it, as we shall see. Continuing, their words were well chosen, as with any armed coup in Byzantium, it was essential to make the citizens understand both the goodwill of the army if their claimant was accepted, as well as their intention to become a destructive force if he was not. So again, this is kind of just par for the course in Byzantium politics and, you know, regime change, if you will. So it's not like they're doing anything out of the ordinary. That's the point. And also consider that this was, you know, considering the context of the times, pretty diplomatic and nonviolent to begin with, very different than the massacre of the Latins. And it says, quote, despite the effort, however, the people of the city responded as they had before with insults and missiles. With heavy hearts, the crusaders returned to Scutari and prepared for war. And so this, unfortunately, is when all hell starts to break loose. So Constantinople is rejecting this regime overthrow, and now the Venetians sided with the Crusaders in Constantinople, and they did their naval attacks on Alexios III's troops. Uh, The Franks were ordered to kind of be like cannon fodder in this weird mission where they're supposed to like climb up on these rocks, and it just puts them in a bad position, uh, as it says here. Dandolo and the Venetians described their plan to outfit the vessels with flying bridges attached to the mast to allow soldiers to be lifted up on the walls where they could more easily fight against the defenders. The idea of clinging to scaffolding some hundred feet in the air attached to a rocking boat amid the chaos of war did not appeal to the Frankish soldiers, 
So basically they refused to do this. And the knights wanted their horses, weapons, and armor and be on the ground, which was what they were used to. And I guess neither side was really willing to budge on what each of them wanted. So <laughs> this is kind of funny. I know it's war and, you know, lives are being lost. But at the same time, you can't help but find some comedy in this where the Venetians are asking the French soldiers to basically fly up on these masts on this boat on water that's rocking about while there's a war going on. They're probably being shot at by arrows and to climb up and scale these walls so they could get over <laughs> <laughs> the French guys are like, hell no, we're not doing that. We want to go on the ground and attack on solid ground. And the Venetians are like, well, we don't want you to do that either. So they're going to have their own debates on how they're even going to perform this siege, it would seem. And meanwhile, in further irony, consider that the leader of this whole debacle is a guy who's blind and 90 years old, commanding them all to do all these things. He can't even see what's going on. So speaking of Mr. Enrico Dondolo... <laughs> Well, what happens next is kind of like uh, a holy miracle, if you will, at least in the way they depict it in the history books here. <laughs> the 90-year-old blind doge Enrique Dandolo basically turns into Bruce Willis in Die Hard uh, if you were in a sequel directed by Michael Bay. <laughs> or maybe he's like uh, Blinken and Robin Hood Men in Tights fighting, maybe in reality, if you've ever seen that movie where he's thinking that he's attacking a bad guy and, you know, winning the battle when he's actually attacking a pillar and a castle wall and is basically beating down an inanimate object. So is that more like the reality here? So we're going to read the narrative here, and I think it's just, it's kind of hilarious to hear how it's described in the history books. So it says, quote, at this point, Enrico Dandolo did an amazing thing. Standing on the prow of his galley, fully armed and with the banner of St. Mark waving in the wind before him, the blind old doge had been listening intently to the sounds of battle and the description of events from his men. When the advance of the transport's vessels halted, he ordered his own galley to advance to the shoreline and run uh, aground beneath the walls. Not surprisingly, the men questioned the wisdom of this tactic. Dandolo erupted in fury, promising to do them bodily harm and again, he's blind, if they did not put his vessel on shore. And so the rowers put their backs to it, and the Vermilion galley moved swiftly forward. All along the line, Venetian sailors watched in a surprise as the Doge's vessel came out from behind the transports and sped towards the shore. So this blind guy is up on the bow, like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet in the Titanic, I'm flying, right? <laughs> he's up there and his ship is going out in front of the rest, leading the charge. And this blind dude is in full armor and he's got the banner of St. Mark's. We've got this Christian flag waving before him <laughs> saying, we will take this city. Follow me. <laughs> and his men are questioning this tactic, but this blind 90 year old guy is going to tell him he's going to F him up if they don't go along with his plan. <laughs> and continuing, it says, Amid the torrent of missiles, like a Michael Bay movie, they could see the winged lion of St. Mark and behind it the figure of their doge standing bravely on the prow. As soon as the galley made a landing, several men grabbed the standard and planted it on the shore. This incredible display of courage gave heart to the Venetians and inspired everyone around them. And there can be no doubt that Dandolo's heroism was startling and decisive. The picture of the old doge, face in the wind, crashing against the shore of Constantinople, is deservedly one of the most enduring in the history of Venice, or for that matter, the Middle Ages. 
So this is like stuff of legend, right? <laughs> Throughout the Middle Ages and years to come or centuries to come. And it says, perhaps that is why it is sometimes exaggerated. So occasionally they exaggerate this story if it doesn't sound exaggerated already. And they actually give you some historical books or writings examples of its exaggeration. One of them being Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And we know that he's, you know, an historian with an axe to grind against Christendom, whom ironically is over-exaggerating this guy's glory. So that's kind of funny. He's anti-Christian, but he's pro-Dandolo. <laughs> And here's where it gets exaggerated pretty obviously. It says, Dandolo has been depicted, again, blind and 90 years old, mind you, as the first warrior on shore. So he jumps off the boat and leads the charge into Constantinople, blind and 90 years old, leading his countrymen into battle against the Greeks. In modern historical works, it is still possible to hear about the old doge waving the banner of St. Mark, shouting to his forces at jumping ashore with the army. I mean, if that really happened, maybe he deserved to win this battle. I don't know. <laughs> it says, even in the pages of the New York Times, one can read that Dandolo, quote, led the way shouting through the breach. And this is pretty funny. It says that it is this exaggerated scene that has led some to conclude that the doge could not have been as old or as blind as eyewitnesses record. <laughs> in truth, though, Dandolo never physically moved during the entire episode. He did not grasp or wave the banner, nor did he shout orders to other ships, which would have been impossible in any case, because they probably wouldn't have heard this 90-year-old guy yelling in the midst of all this chaos. And he did not even get out of his galley. Dandolo was able to carry the load of his armor and maintain his footing on a moving vessel. But as anyone has ever watched an elderly woman crossing the Grand Canal on the Trigetti, weighed down by their shopping bags can attest, making a joke that an old woman can hold her shopping bags getting off of a, a boat in a, you know, a maritime situation. This is quite normal for Venetians because, you know, Venice, you know, having all the, the waters and the boats around it and whatever, the, the, the boat streets, right? In short, Dandolo's dramatic act was well within the abilities of a vigorous man with no sight and abundant age. So point being, he could have been up there and been seen as a symbol and balanced himself with his armor on. But to act like he was shouting orders and threatening violence against those people who were questioning his uh, tactics and that he <laughs> jumped off the boat blind, 90 years old, ran onto the shores of Constantinople and led the charge against the Greeks. That might be the Michael Bay explosions version of the story. But I do think if they ever did a remake of this scene in modern Hollywood, they should get Bruce Willis with his diehard wife beater on and with Michael Bay directing. That, that would be my choice, uh, my casting and producing pick. So we'll let you decide what you think really happened with Mr. Dandolo and his dramatic act on the high seas attacking Constantinople. So continuing on after that, more fighting rages back and forth, but the result was basically this, quote, the damage to the city and popular discontent with Alexius III's ability to prevent it was dangerous for an emperor with a challenger outside. So again, back in the day, if somebody lost a battle, they were seen as kind of unfit to rule. That's just kind of how it went. And we already mentioned this before. That's why Irene of Athens was very unpopular. That's why her son, of whom she gouged out his eyes, was very unpopular, right? All, all these things. And so... The current regime's emperor is, uh, you know, getting questioned by the populace because they can't 
you know, hold off against this invading crusade, championing the uh, future emperor Alexios IV's cause. And it says, quote, Late that night, Alexius III fled Constantinople with a thousand pounds of gold and as many precious stones and pearls as he could carry, planning to use the money to raise additional forces. The emperor left his wife and heir behind to manage things in his absence. Given the poor quality of native troops, he probably planned to return with a mercenary army, but the Byzantine aristocracy was unwilling to endure the current danger any longer. So really think about this. The guy who was ruling Constantinople at the time, of whom is being usurped by this fourth crusade, well, when he sees that maybe he's going to lose the battle, instead of conceding and not causing any more bloodshed, he decides to flee the whole city with a bunch of gold and as much money and precious stones as he can take. He leaves behind his wife and children, (laughs) very noble, right? Um, And he tries to go out to the outskirts and he's going to try to probably get some mercenaries to come back and take the city. That that would be the uh, logical thing to do if you're, a, I guess, a spineless coward leaving behind your Greek brethren and your wife and children and taking all the money you can, right? So as we mentioned, even though this Fourth Crusade, you know, in this attack, we're, we're not condoning it. Look at the person who's being usurped. And this is still just par for the course in terms of Byzantine coups. Nothing that the Fourth Crusade did here was out of the ordinary for how these things just usually work in Constantinople. And in fact, at least at this point, the massacre of the Latins looks far worse in comparison. Um, And the results from here on out are kind of unforeseen and organically developed and are part of a lot of competing factions and goes on for a while. So, you know, it's a completely different situation than the massacre of the Latins. And there were a lot of potential ways to mitigate further damage down the road, but unfortunately that didn't happen because of stupid decisions on both sides, east or west. So, moving on, the Byzantine aristocracy that remained was not going to wait for their fleeing emperor taking all their money to try to raise up a force and come back. And it says they were unwilling to endure the danger any longer. So basically what they did with Alexius III gone, it says, quote, they restored the crown to his blind brother, Isaac II. And again, I'm joking here. Maybe they saw the blind Dandolo's heroic actions and realized that, hey, maybe a blind guy can be emperor. <laughs> and so it says at once the messengers were sent to the crusader camp with the news that the father of the young prince was again in power. Now, I guess this is much to the chagrin of Alexios IV, who wants to be in power, because, again, traditionally, blind emperors don't regain the throne, so he's not even really getting what he wants, and I guess there's going to be a power struggle, in a way, between him and his father, which is interesting. And it says, the gates of the city were flung open and the crusaders were welcomed as heroes. So at first, the crusaders are welcomed as heroes and liberators, strangely enough. And I guess when they saw their own leader flee with all the money and leave behind his wife and children and all of its people, you could probably understand why. Moving on, it says, quote, for the thousands of Venetian residents of Constantinople, this must have been a joyous occasion. Most of them live within the Venetian city quarters, a district that lay along the southern edge of the Golden Horn from the Parama and the Fainar district. I'm sure I'm butchering these pronunciations. About one-third mile in length. So the point is, the Venetians once again seem to benefit from shenanigans in Constantinople. 
even when it's their own brethren being sacrificed or uh, genocided in the massacre of the Latins, or it's the opposite and the Greek forces uh, lost out and their emperor fled and they have a new one, right? And so it says, today this is about half the area along the Golden Horn between the two bridges. Half of the Venetian quarter in 1203 was outside the city's seawalls, where the residences and shops fronted a central road and farther toward the shore stood landing stages for merchant vessels. So the point is, there were long-lasting effects that benefited the Venetians in Constantinople and obviously people in Venice to be able to trade through this port, right? Now, we're going to go through this in the next segment. Uh, I thought we'd get to it during this one, but just don't have enough time. On the Jews in Venice and Constantinople, and especially Jews living in the Venetian quarters during this time and after that benefited from this as well, And that gets into the Kabbalah and Christendom and all the kind of strangeness that we thought, you know, maybe there's some suspicions regarding that. So we'll talk about that in the next segment for members because I didn't want to omit that uh, because I promised we'd get to it. Moving on. So how this is uh, one instance where the narrative brings in, you know, the patriarchate, the clergy uh, for once. It says the patriarchate of Grotto benefited from this. Now, apparently this was kind of tied to Venice, even though this patriarchate started out as anti-West, I guess. That's its origins. And so, is this tied to the reunionist interests, but they're under Venetian dominance, not so much how the Pope wanted the reunion to be, right? So is there like a real reunion of East and West movement that cares about Christian values and, you know, stabilizing Constantinople and, you know, the real ecumenism? And is there a fake unionist party That's really just tied to merchant interests, right? And is that rightly so what a lot of the Greek people see as the Latin culture and the reunionist culture, but they're missing the people who are doing more noble things. And like we mentioned, the situation with the Franks and the Pope and all of this, who didn't want any of this to happen. Um, So that, I think, is what is the tempting, seducing serpent to try to project it all onto a reunion uh, and just try to keep that bad blood and separate it both east and west and continue this schism on this level and all the mythos surrounding this fourth crusade to keep it divided. So that's what we're trying to straighten out here and show that it's much more complicated and there's good and bad on both sides. Or I should say good, bad, and ugly on both sides. We'll leave it at that. So continuing on, it says, quote, On August 1st, 1203, the young prince was crowned co-emperor Alexius IV. With a transfer of power now complete, Dandolo's immediate concern was the payment of the Franks' outstanding debt to Venice. So Dandolo is going to honor uh, the French soldier's contribution and be like, all right, we're going to settle this debt out, you're going to get paid, and you're going to get more money as well because apparently the agreement was to get 100,000 marks from Alexius IV to put him back on the throne. And that would be split between the Franks and the Venetians. And of that split, the 50,000 marks, 34,000 would cover that debt that had not been paid. But here's the problem. The Latin and Frankish side were trying to honor their debts and promises, even if they were temporal ones. Whereas the Greek emperor could not honor his own promises. And as we mentioned, he's already reneged on a few where he exaggerated his support in Constantinople, which basically led to the conflict in the first place. If he had all his support, they might have been able to take it peacefully. And now he can't even pay them. And maybe 
part of that is because the other dude who fled took a bunch of gold and, you know, jewels and stuff, uh, but left his wife and children, right? So we saw what was valuable in his eyes. So it says, quote, all was not well in Constantinople. Alexius was having a difficult time coming up with the money, again, 100,000 marks, to pay the crusaders. So he proposed that the crusading hosts remain in his service until the beginning of the sailing season. Now, is there a pragmatism here? This dude knows that the emperor he just usurped might come back with some troops. So could he want to delay these crusaders from going to the Holy Land and keep them there to protect him in case this guy comes back with some troops? So who knows if he could actually pay or if he's just making up an excuse. And judging by this guy's character so far, I wouldn't put it past him. So I don't know the logistics, but that's certainly a potential possibility here, something to consider. But nonetheless, on the other side of the equation, if you consider it from Dandolo and the Venetians, uh, viewpoint, there's still uh, an issue about leaving Constantinople here because if that exiled emperor comes back with a mercenary force, well, the Venetians in Constantinople would probably be the ones bearing the brunt of that wrath, right? Because they were the ones that turned on him. And so out of all of this, the rank and file, and namely the Franks, wanted to get to the Holy Land. They didn't want to stay stuck in Constantinople and they were promised they wouldn't be, right? That was the agreement. So this would be a hard sell to get the Franks to remain in Constantinople. But once again, Dandolo and Alexius IV are able to convince them like they are whenever they dissent. Um, And usually they probably are trying to play upon their Christian duties and try to make it seem noble. And it's not about promising them money or anything like that. And again, that shows the mindset of the Franks and the Crusaders in general. They wanted to go help fight for Christianity but they're being used as mercenaries and the carrot of virtue and holiness is being used to justify all these political machinations and the Babylon, Constantinople, Ouroboros interests. So moving on, this is where things go from bad to worse. Seemingly, order has been restored, but Alexios IV, the new emperor, and Mr. Boniface of Montferrat, the uh, mastermind or you know the Germanic interest in this, Uh, Remember, they're related, uh, I think the brother-in-laws or whatever. Well, apparently, they're going to take some of these crusaders to go on a mission to Thrace, if I'm pronouncing that right. And this is in, you know, Byzantine territory. This is not fighting for the Holy Land. And they apparently thought that they could get some, I guess, financial benefit out of this. Um, So while they're gone and not going to the Holy Land, which is supposedly the vow that they're all supposed to be (laughs) adhering to, Well, in their absence, the seething anger of the Byzantine people began to boil over in Constantinople. Around or probably on August 18th, a Greek mob attacked the Latin Quarter. So here we go. The Greeks are attacking the Latins again. And it says they made no distinction between friend and foe, torching the homes of Venetians, Pisans, Genoese, and Amalfitans. Don't know about them. They're first time they've come up. Nonetheless, this is like a massacre of the Latins 2.0, but it's led by just the mob rather than any particular leaders. And obviously it's not as bad, Um, but it's not discriminating here. And the Venetians are going to catch the brunt of this as well, uh, as opposed to last time. And it said this affected the otherwise impossible. And this is kind of funny again, uh, in the, you, you laugh and you cry kind of way. This attack reconciled the Pisans and the Venetians, right? They were like brutal enemies 
And it was seen as, you know, hell would freeze over before they would reconcile with each other. But when the Greeks came to attack, now all of a sudden they team up and they want to get the Greeks back, right? So it says the former enemies were now united in their desire for revenge. It would be surprising if some of the displaced Venetians did not petition their doge to retaliate against the Greeks or forcibly restore them to their quarter. Yet Dandolo, like the Frankish barons, had no desire to provoke a war with Constantinople. So they're appealing to their aristocracy and say, hey, the Greeks just attacked us. We want some sort of restitution. We want vengeance. So they're going to go to Dandolo and all the leaders, but the leaders don't want to provoke another war in Constantinople and cause a bunch of unrest. So this is a war between the mobs, right? (laughs) The gangs of, of New York, but more like the gangs of Constantinople. And so with the emperor gone and the crusade mastermind Boniface gone on their little mini crusade for Byzantine interests, well, the Venetians are going to take this matter into their own hands and they're going to start a huge fire, which is going to be really a major turning point in all of this. And it says, on August 19th, a group of armed Flemings, Pisans, and Venetians crossed the Golden Horn on fishing boats, entered the city, and began setting fires. Before they were finished, one of history's most destructive blazes had been set. For three days, it raged across Constantinople's midsection, the most populous and opulent region of the city. An estimated 100,000 Byzantines lost their homes, the material costs of the fire were astronomical, and the wake of such destruction, it was no longer safe for a Latin of any stripe to live in Constantinople. So nice job, Latins, uh, retaliating like a bunch of morons here. Um, 15,000 of them took what they could and fled across the harbor to the protection of the Crusaders. So now they've just incited more bad blood, and now they've divided the lines even more. So the Latins are now hiding with the Crusaders, and apparently the fire even burnt down the Pisans' quarters, not the Venetians'. So another interesting development here. I guess that's kind of convenient for the Venetians. But nonetheless, the fire has also separated the Greeks and the Latins even more so physically. So that's kind of an ominous sign. So finally, the emperor and Boniface return, and their venture they went out on wasn't even profitable, apparently. And now they were dealing with a very strong anti-Latin Constantinople faction in their court. The whole city hates the Latins. And the emperor is now kind of at the mercy of them because, remember, he's buddy-buddy with the Crusaders and, you know, the Latins that put him on the throne. So this is causing a big problem. And now he knows that he'd never be able to pay the Crusaders nor honor the contract with Dandolo. And so what does the emperor do? Well, he basically pulls a Joe Biden and just says, I'll ignore it, right? Uh, We're just not going to talk about the money I owe you and pretend like uh, I I got nothing to do with you crusaders or you Latins. Uh, Yeah, nothing to see here, right? Just like there's nothing to see on Hunter Biden laptops, right? So here's another instance where the Greek faction is not acting so honorably. Before you had the emperor fleeing and taking all the money, leaving behind his wife and children and people. And now you have the emperor who overtook it, not honoring his payments for the crusaders who helped put him there. And he's now siding with the anti-Latin aristocracy who's intimidating him. And so he's just going to say, yeah, I'm ignoring this. And it says, quote, at least in the Crusaders case, they had accepted their responsibilities and done all that they could do to discharge them. So the Latin culture and the Latin side and the Crusader side has been more honorable to this point because they've at least kept their word, even if some of their word was to, you know, kind of be used in these Byzantine coups. The same could not be said of Alexius. 
And so the crusaders can't get to the Holy Land because they're not going to get paid and they're kind of stuck there. So is this the karma of not listening to the Pope and the noble crusaders who uh, would not sack Zara and went on to the Cathar Crusade to battle the heresies coming from Constantinople? Continuing, it says, Dandolo met in council with the barons. Everyone felt strongly that Alexius had no intention of honoring his word, and at last the council decided to send an embassy of three Franks and three Venetians to the emperor to deliver an ultimatum. So now the crusaders are turning on him because he's, they're being ignored. If Alexius would not keep his promises, the crusaders would extract their payment from his land. So basically, they're going to go out and uh, plunder the countryside to get their payment because they think they rightly deserve it. Now, I'm not condoning this, but nonetheless, it's a rock and a hard place, and it's a bit more understandable, their frustration, than on the other side of it. And so the anti-Latin Greeks were basically in control of the court now, and they were enraged by this proposal. But the emperor just basically remains silent and is pulling a pilot, trying to wash his hands and trying to act like he's got no responsibility. And, you know, heavy is the crown, right? If you want that Byzantine crown, then... You know, this is kind of the fate of that, I suppose. And he doesn't want the responsibility, but it seems he wants all the glory of it, right? So after this proposal and the Greeks get all angry and the emperor does nothing, well, the crusaders feared for their lives and retreated. So the point being is that the Greek aristocracy, even if they're angry at the Latins, they could have given into the demands and just paid these guys and got them out of there. So they could have gotten rid of the crusaders if they had just figured out how to get the money and then they would be gone, right? Because the regime is stabilized, it's back in control, and they've kicked out uh, the Latins, the, the fire has divided them. A lot of the Venetians or the Latins are with the crusaders anyway. So this could have actually gotten rid of the Latin presence in a big way in Byzantium if they had just paid the money, right? So you could also fault them for that. So, of course, what happens? The Crusaders go back and they tell everybody what happened. And now the Frankish Knights are getting mad because they view the Greeks as lacking honor because they're not honoring their promises, right? Which is understandable. And honor was also important to the Venetians. And like we've said, despite some of their legalism and omissions, they've actually kept their promises too. And basically, they align together to go out and plunder and get their money and they engage in tactical plundering the rest of the winter in kind of like the suburbs of the city, and the Venetians use their naval powers to raid ships and harbors. And of course, during all of this time, the new emperor, Alexio IV's reputation was plummeting because all of his people are being attacked by these crusaders that want their money. And this, <laughs> of course, in typical Byzantine fashion, sparks a successful coup against him in which this next guy, Alexius V, uh, Ducas Mortzuflis, we're just going to call him Morty for short, he gains the imperial throne and he tries to ward off the angry crusaders, but he's not very successful at it. And so he tries to use Boniface, remember he's the guy who's, you know, orchestrated this whole crusade going to Constantinople along with uh, Alexios IV. He's kind of like the middleman for the negotiations, right? Because he's still cool with Alexius, their, you know, uh, brother-in-laws or whatever. So Boniface's brother-in-law is now in jail and he's not the emperor anymore. And he's sent out to negotiate with Dandolo. And Dandolo demands things that kind of just weren't going to happen. 
Uh, Alexios IV was supposed to return to the throne with a reduced punishment for Morty. So this usurper, Mr. Morty, he wasn't going to be killed. He was going to get a reduced punishment, but just give the power back to Alexios IV. He's our guy to negotiate with. Number two, he insisted on the payment that they would receive and to also get some extra gold. So this seems to be the payment of the debt. And also there was Venetian contracts that were involved in all of this that happened during this, uh, you know, Alexios IV short reign. So it all seems, you know, f- kind of fair. They just want what they asked for, right? They're not asking additional demands, really. And they also demanded that the Greek church be returned to Roman obedience, which was part of the agreement and part of what Alexios IV was doing, right? So that wasn't really out of the question either, despite, you know, the Greeks hating being under Roman obedience, right? For particular factions in terms of a uh, clergy and the church. And the fourth condition would be that the Byzantine force would help the crusaders go to the Holy land and get to the final destination. So if that was accepted, that could have solved a lot of problems and the crusade actually got into the Holy land. Now the author of the book says that this was all for show because he just assumed that these demands would never be accepted. And apparently the demands were used as kind of like a stall where they wanted to actually capture Mr. Morty, the new emperor, and get Alexios IV back on the throne by performing a counter coup, <laughs> basically. And so what happens is Morty figures this out and he escapes. And now Morty realizes that Alexios IV, who is the imprisoned emperor, former emperor, well, he's very important to these crusaders. So what does he do? He has him strangled. He kills him. But here's what he does. Uh, he calls it a natural death, right? Uh, oh, he just you know was strangled in his cell naturally, right? Um, obviously, they wouldn't let anybody probably look at the body. And he even holds a Christian burial and cries crocodile tears for Alexios IV. So here's another Byzantine emperor uh, who just usurped, and now he realizes the imprisoned emperor is important to the crusader, so he kills him. But he tries to pretend like it was a natural death. And this guy's pretty young, remember. He's a young prince or emperor. And he holds a, oh, it's a Christian burial. And he's just like, oh, he was so great. He's crying at his grave. You know, a complete uh, BS drama show. And the Crusaders were not buying it. They believe that he murdered him. And I'm sure they had some intelligence telling them that that was the case. So no side of this Byzantine emperor coin, whether it's pro-Latin, anti-Latin, whatever it is, is looking very honorable here. They're murdering each other, pretending to have Christian burials for them and crocodile tears. They're leaving their people, their wives and children, stealing money. Uh, all things considered, Alexios IV looks pretty good compared to a lot of these other guys because he's just lying about his reputation. <laughs> so... Uh, And he can't pay off his debts. So that's actually much more venial in terms of the sins compared to these other guys who are are lying and abandoning their family. But perhaps some other effects of this death of Alexios IV uh, are a lot more impactful than one might think. Now with this guy dead, he had treaties or agreements that related to the city of Zara, which had been already sacked, right? And a Venetian treaty in a contract with them for like maritime stuff. So the Venetians were getting paid still on some level. Now these treaties are void because the guy who made him is dead. And there's a usurper who murdered him. Right. And it says, quote, the only sworn commitments that still survived, and this is very ironic, 
were the vows that the leaders had made to take the hosts to Palestine to the Crusades in March, no matter what the situation in Constantinople, and the vow each crusader had made to God to deliver the land of his son. So really think about the irony of this. All of the vows that are political and economic and whatever through this whole Fourth Crusade debacle are null and void, and the only vows that remain are the ones that the Pope initiated with the Crusaders to go to the Holy Land, and also the vow that no matter what happened in Constantinople, the Crusaders would go to the Holy Land uh, relatively quickly and in that winter of that year. But of course, none of that was going to end up being fulfilled. But think about that. The spiritual vows to God were the ones that only remained. And now they're in a situation where they either got to get a bunch of money and supplies to be able to do that, but they're facing a hostile regime. So they can't fulfill their vows anyways, or maybe they didn't try very hard because what happens next is really the worst part of the sack of Constantinople and where it gets really ugly and quote unquote satanic. Um, but before this happened, apparently the crusader clergy tried to salvage this situation, but they were going to act in defiance of the Pope to do so. Now, here is again where it gets pretty interesting. The attack was based on the fact that Morty, who usurped, was a murderer. He had committed murder and therefore he was not legitimate. But at the same time, it says, quote, Innocent III, the Pope, had already unambiguously, meaning it's not like Vatican II, a bunch of ambiguous language. No, this was clearly defined that the Crusaders were forbidden to do any attack on the Byzantines. That's what it says in the text here. So keep that in mind, Eastern Orthodox polemicizers who blame the Pope for the Fourth Crusade. He specifically ordered in a very direct way for the Crusaders to not attack Constantinople or the Greeks. But unfortunately, the infantry still didn't even know that they were excommunicated let alone the Pope forbidding them to attack Constantinople. Now, Dandolo is really the one who knows all of this stuff, um, and he tries to do damage control, and he even tries to get absolution through the Pope, and he was trying to convince the Pope that this diversion to Constantinople was a greater good, and he's like appealing to the Pope to try to get him to change his mind, basically. So it's not like they defied him immediately, but Dandolo is really the only one who knows all this stuff. So... He writes a letter, I guess, to the Pope, uh, an envoy or whatever, and tries to explain this. But apparently, and this is where we start to wrap it all up here, Pope Innocent III did not see things the same way. And we're going to read his response. On February 25th, 1204, so this is during the winter before the Crusaders are supposed to leave for the Holy Land, Innocent responded to the Doge, or Dandolo. In a sternly worded letter, he blamed Dandolo bitterly for the destruction of Zara, a city that he knew full well was under the protection of Rome. He scolded him for his rejection of Peter Capuano. Remember, that was the cardinal who was telling him that he wasn't allowed to attack Zara. And the one he dismissed. As well as support for the attacks on Christians in the East. that He was scolding him for that. Finally, he warned the doge not to rest smugly in his victory, for although matters had turned out well, seemingly at the time, it would have been better or far better if the crusade had made its way directly to the Holy Land. And I'd say it'd be hard-pressed uh, to not agree with the Pope here, even coming from the most vehement of Eastern Orthodox or even Protestant uh, polemicists against the Pope 
like I said, it would be hard pressed to not to agree he's in the right on this issue with everything going on. Uh, it says, nevertheless, after cataloging these crimes, Innocent shifted his tone, professing that we refer to these matters for your correction in a spirit of genuine affection because the father corrects the son whom he loves. So even though he's being very stern, he wants to balance that out with some mercy and be like, I'm correcting you like a father who corrects the son whom he loves. And he commanded Dandolo and his countrymen to atone for their blemishes of their sins with tears of repentance. So he's calling for repentance and not to attack Constantinople and to get to the Holy Land or I guess GTFO, right? Uh, and do this once they had received absolution. And he continued, and he said, Thus having sought absolution in humility and having received it with devotion, you might press on with full strength toward recovery of the Holy Land. So this is the Pope's last appeal to get help to the Holy Land, to protect Byzantium, fight the Muslims, not kill anybody in the East, not attack Christians, have repentance, and do everything that they should have done at the start in Zara. One final chance, right? So what happens? Well, Dandolo attacks Constantinople anyways, leaves the Crusaders in the dark on this whole exchange with the Pope, except for those in the know, right? And I'm not saying that the French barons weren't in the know. Um, you know, obviously they've been corrupted at this point to go along with whatever Dandolo and the Venetians were doing. And he expected that he could get an absolution afterwards because the Pope, you know, I mean, that, that's the, the Catholic thing, right? If you are repentant, you can't be refused absolution. But nonetheless, he's going to defy the Pope and take Constantinople or they're going to try. And he... They have this whole plan to divide the city up between the Venetians, the Franks, maybe even have Boniface as the emperor. Uh, but unfortunately, that would piss off the other Latins, having him be the emperor. So it was a complex situation. And they attacked and they suffered an unsuccessful attack against Mr. Morty. So that's kind of ominous, right? Um, one of their first raids, they lose. So is that kind of showing, you know, is God on your side here, right? And finally, though, they persisted, Constantinople fell, and this attack was particularly brutal. All this bad blood had been uh, building up over time. And still, nonetheless, some Byzantine historians, despite all of this, have some favorable things to say about the Venetians. Uh, some of them polemicized the, the Frankish crusaders in this particular attack, right? Um, and, but ultimately, in the end, Zara ends up being organically restored to the Hungarian king where it was supposed to be. So all of the shenanigans in Zara just led to being what the Pope wanted anyways. And the Latins gain control of Constantinople, and that leads to a whole other complex set of situations that the book will describe in the next chapter, in chapter 10, on the Venetians and the Latin Empire. From 1204 to 1205. So if you want to continue this saga, feel free to read the rest of the book. But that's where we're going to sign off. And there's going to be tensions later on between the Franks and the Venetians and obviously the Greek aristocracy under the Latins. Nothing's going to get better. And we know what ultimately happens to Constantinople centuries later uh, when the Muslim Turks finally overtake it. And lamentably, Hagia Sophia gets turned into a mosque. So, to wrap up this saga, let's summarize and think about the lessons learned. This whole escapade, first point, was built up organically with shenanigans on both sides of the Greeks and Latins. Second point, 
the Frankish side on the whole was more honorable and actually held to their words, even though they were in the dark about a lot of things that if they knew about them, they probably would have refused to do. And on the whole, I would say they're just much less accountable. Um, and the worst thing you could chalk up to them is naivete and then finally turning fully satanic in the final siege of Constantinople. But again, compare that to the massacre of the Latins. And if nothing else, I'd say that those two events, the final siege and the massacre siege, uh, are at, at the least equal in their shamefulness. And remember that the early French aristocracy and the ones that followed them that didn't even want to attack the Catholic city of Zara, well, Simon de Montfort and that whole crew went on to the future Cathar Crusades to, again, suppress the heresy of Manichaean dualism that came from Constantinople, ironically, uh, less than a decade later. And the Venetians at least upheld their oaths, but their final mortal sin sack was quite shameful. But remember all of the Byzantine coups that were happening and the one that happened in the midst of this crusade with Mr. Morty uh, murdering Alexios IV and then the previous emperor fleeing and leaving behind his wife and children and taking a bunch of money, not to mention leaving behind all of his people. And so obviously... All of this happening during this time certainly did not help the situation and only enable the bad blood between the Greeks and the Latins. Third point, and we're kind of rehashing here, but nonetheless, this was far different than the brutal and immediate uprising and inciting of genocide during the massacre of the Latins and that coup. And at least there was a lot more diplomacy and civilized battling that happened up until the final sack and a lot of opportunities to prevent it. And, you know, I guess you could say in many ways that's, that's worse because people kept choosing the bad way. Um, but nonetheless, to compare the massacre of the Latins and try to act like that's a footnote in history and not really a big deal, and that this final sack of Constantinople was basically, they're describing it as being like the massacre of the Latins actually was, uh, you know, kind of substituting the paradigm of the actual massacre of the Latins and trying to place that upon what Constantinople's sack was, I think that tends to be the tactics, and I think that that is grossly unfair and uh, you know an over-exaggeration of the situation and not understanding all the complexities and not admitting uh, the Greek side and complicity in all of this. And it's very important, in my opinion, not to cry victim uh, if you are an Eastern Orthodox polemicizer and blame everything on Rome, the papacy, and the Frankish kings especially. So, with that being said, point four, the Pope did not sanction the Crusades' divergences. He was against it all at the very start. They kept defying him, and if people had listened to the Pope, like everyone claims that the ignorant, stupid Catholics who bow down and worship him as a god-emperor do, well, that would have prevented this whole debacle. There would have been no attack on Zara, Constantinople, and the entire time he had the crusade under excommunication, even if those in the know manipulated this for their own advantage. And it seems that in the end, no one got to the Holy Land, and they were all devoured by Constantinople's Ouroboros that kept on devouring from that point on, regardless of if it was in charge by Greek or Latin aristocracy. To gain access to the second tower... Head to www.rockstaresoterica.com 
and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com.